It is good. It is good, good, good to be together uh, this morning. My name is Gabe Coyle, for those of you who are new. And uh, my role around here is the campus pastor at Christ Communities Downtown Campus. And I got to be straight with you, I, I love being a pastor. I just love it. Um, you make it really easy to love being a pastor. Not everybody gets to do what they genuinely enjoy and delight in doing, but I really love being a pastor. Um, most, most days, I can't imagine doing anything else. I mean, there are some days, right? We all have those days where like a beach would be nice with something, you know, anyway. Um, <clears throat> but no, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. But, <laughs> but there are some days, some moments where I'm just absolutely terrified of being a pastor. I'm absolutely terrified. And here's why. You know, there are so many things that can go wrong. <laughs> That's just an optimist talking to you, isn't it? Um, when, I, when we first started, when we first planted this downtown campus, my, my mantra kind of as a leader was that leadership is failing people at a rate that they can handle. Uh, just as long as you stick around. Um, but listen, you can have all the best intentions in the world and you can destroy someone's life. <laughs> Great, huh? This is starting off so strong. <laughs> Man, no, but you, you, you can feel really convicted, really convinced, and yet be on, the totally, be on the totally wrong path. So many things could go wrong. And you see, I grew up in the church. I don't remember like a period in my life where I wasn't engaged in the church. I've probably been to, I don't know how many Sunday morning or small group gatherings, youth events, training events, conferences, whatever label you want to smack on it. I've been to about everything in a church. Um, and there's a lot of that I don't remember. <laughs> Um, I was paying attention. I just don't remember. And it's just part of who I am and how it's formed me and who I am. But there are certain moments, certain days that I just can't forget. Um, you know, I'll never forget going in one Sunday morning, sitting on the second row with my mom, you know, and one of the pastors came out, thought it was going to be a normal Sunday, and he resigns because he'd been having this long marital affair. And I just remember the church being crushed, going out in the lobby where people are usually downing donuts and coffee, but just where tears were everywhere. I remember just how the church was never really the same. I'm not sure if I was ever really the same. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget when I was in college, there was this pastoral team. Most of those guys had played a pretty crucial role in my life, just mentoring me as I was growing up. But that pastoral team, it just disintegrated. When one of the pastors, one of the senior pastors just was power hungry, was micromanaging, was manipulative, and it just destroyed the team dynamics. So, so often we just don't even think about how power is one of the greatest enemies to the church and how that power hungry and lust just can destroy. Those are the days I'll never forget. And I know some of you in here, you have stories you'll never forget too. I don't know everybody's history with the church. I don't know how that all plays out in your life. But we've all got some stories, some moments emblazoned in our memories, moments where spiritual leadership just went awry and spiritual malpractice was at its height. Well, this morning, the beauty of God's word is that Jesus speaks to that pain this morning. Um, we're going to continue our walk through Matthew's eyewitness account when he walked with Jesus and his life, his death, and his resurrection, and we find some of the harshest words, some of the harshest words that come from Jesus' mouth this morning. Words, honestly, that any sane pastor 
wouldn't just naturally say, hey, this is a good text out of nowhere just to preach, which is why we walk through on, on a whole, whole books of the Bible, like Matthew here, because the text is our guide, whether I like it or not. <laughs> and I'm not the guide. And so my preconceived ideals, my favorites, don't dominate our diet. But God's word, we pray we, we can preach the whole counsel of God's word for us here. And so this morning, we come to Jesus' some of Jesus' harshest words. And you know who they're directed at? When Jesus is angry, you know who he's most angry at. It's not the Roman government. Although he's got choice words, let's be straight. He's got choice words for the Roman government. It's not for the loose living prostitute. Although he is very adamant about calling out sin, pointing us to the life of flourishing and what it means to be right and have rightness and following his design. No, Jesus' harshest words, when he is the most angry, and rightly so, are directed at blind spiritual leaders. Leaders who are hurting people and think they're doing God's work. Leaders who have people surrounding them who are praising what they're doing and celebrating what they're doing, but they're destroying people. Leaders who think they're spot on, but they couldn't be further from the mark. The scribes and Pharisees, they were the religious leaders in Jerusalem, which was the religious city for Israel. And listen, if you lived in the first century, you wouldn't have found more focused, more passionate, more sincere leaders than these guys. I mean, they got stuff done. They were change agents, right? Their, their office was the temple in Jerusalem, this monstrous image of power. I mean, why, why wouldn't they think they're spot on? They've got all of the success Things are going rather smoothly in some degree, and yet they were dead wrong, utterly, utterly blind to how completely off the mark they were. And you know what happens as a result? This is a bit of a preview to what happens to the end of our text here. All of Jerusalem ends in shambles, and Jesus blames it on the religious leaders. He places the blame there. When we read through Matthew 23, what we're going to be doing here in just a moment I want you to notice that Jesus, he's brilliant as he begins to bring about this communication to the scribes and Pharisees. He, he orchestrates it like a funeral dirge, like a woman who's in the streets crying out, whoa, it's whoa, whoa, whoa. Seven times this language of whoa just resonates and it climaxes at the end of our passage with this prayer of deep lament, not over the temple, but all of Jerusalem. Why? Because spiritual leadership, with spiritual leadership, there are always high stakes. And it's never just contained in its one community, but it always has ripples to the whole city. And so knowing this, we, we find Jesus in his final week before he goes to the cross to pay the sufficient death, debt for all of us and our sin. But before he does that, after conversation after conversation, debate after debate with these religious leaders, Jesus finally pronounces, in a way that only he can, his condemnation on this spiritual malpractice. And it's these words which are now a warning to every pastoral leader who seeks to follow Jesus and lead Jesus' followers, these, these words are a warning to every church that empowers leaders to know who it is you're empowering to actually have direction in the lives of the congregation. It's Jesus' words here that reveal this dark underbelly of spiritual malpractice. 
And so, so because these words, while they're directed, I think for all of us as the church, they have this unique nuance for pastoral leaders. I want to invite Tyler and Ryan to come up here and we're going to read this passage together. All of Matthew 23 is kind of an enacted statement that we know these words have a unique nuance for us. Not that we're on a hierarchy that we're better, but we do have and carry a greater responsibility. And that's weighty. And I've been wrestling with this passage all week. And so we're going to read this passage as an enacted statement that we need to hear this this morning, that all of us do, but especially us three, and we need your help here, okay? So would you please stand for the reading of God's word? It's Matthew chapter 23. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their, fing- their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter nor selves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. When he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and bay everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy 
and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill to crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This, this is, is the, the word, word of the, the Lord. Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Woe is right, huh? <laughs> now you know why I'm a bit terrified to be a pastor sometimes. Um, sometimes pastors, spiritual leaders, they can be the worst. And they don't even realize it. And I'm not saying, I want to be clear here, that every time a pastor or a spiritual leader does something you don't like, that somehow that's spiritual malpractice. There are times... As pastors, as spiritual leaders, we're called to say and do things that will chafe against our conscience and chafe against communal uh, values, all right? There are times that happens. But there is a distinction between spiritual malpractice and prophetic voice. There is a distinction between being a pastor and sometimes calling out, convicting sin, pointing to the growth of the body, and just being very inappropriate, prideful, arrogant, and so on, and destroying the church, Okay? And so here's what we're going to do together. There's a lot that's going on in Jesus' woes here that climax in this lament. And what we're going to do is out of everything that Jesus has laid out for us here, there's a lot of overlap with these woes, okay? We're going to look at the top three signs of spiritual malpractice. The top three signs of spiritual malpractice. So how can you spot when I've missed it? When we've missed it? When, when any pastor has missed it and they claim that they've got it all together? And then... We're going to look at how we can help each other because it's not just about pointing out what's broken. It's about how do we as a church now grow together in Christ? How do we as a church or whatever church you happen to be a part of, if you're visiting this morning, visiting family, what have you, what does it look like? What can you do? What can we do together when any spiritual leader is sincere, is passionate, is focused, but potentially dead wrong? Okay, so how do we navigate that together going forward. I need to hear these. I need to be honest with myself, and I also know I have blind spots, and so I need your help this morning. So together, we're going to look at these as we navigate just the muck and mire of these woes, okay? So let's first look at the top sign of spiritual malpractice that Jesus condemns, and this is it. When sincerity is more important than truth. The number one sign of spiritual malpractice is when sincerity is more important than truth. This is all over the seven woes that Jesus lists here, but it's maybe most explicit in the first woe in verses 13 through 15. Look with me again at verse 13. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. 
For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! If you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Whew. So you talk about sincere leaders, right? The scribes and Pharisees, they were so sincere, so authentic in their feelings that they would cross mountain and sea just to convince someone of their point of view. How many people do you know who are that sincere about what they believe? I mean, they, they feel like God has said, this is my word to you. And you look in their eyes and they feel convicted down to their bones. Listen, sincerity isn't enough. It isn't enough. Even the greatest amount of sincerity, here's why, even the greatest amount of sincerity, as we see here with the Pharisees, will ultimately destroy you if it's headed in the wrong direction. Malcolm uh, Gladwell, a staff writer for The New Yorker and author of five books, all of which have been on the New York Times bestseller list, he tells of how in the summer and fall of 2009, hundreds of Toyota owners came forward with this alarming allegation. Their cars were suddenly and uncontrollably accelerating. Toyota was forced to recall 10 million vehicles, pay a fine of more than $1 billion, and settle countless Lawsuits. Now, the consensus out of all of this was that there was something badly wrong with the world's most pop popular cars. The only problem, though, is that there wasn't. <laughs> what do I mean? Okay, study after study proved that when brakes are applied in a car going 60 miles per hour, 80 miles per hour, 100 miles per hour, regardless, brakes win every time. Brakes win every time. So what was happening? Why were all of these cars uncontrollably accelerating? The people who died in cars that were uncontrollably accelerating, are you ready for this? They were accidentally slamming the gas to the floor, thinking it was the brake pedal. That's terrifying, isn't it? The famous example was the story of an off-duty cop in Southern California who called the police while on the highway. And the more he pressed down on the pedal, no matter how sincerely he felt that the gas pedal was the brake, the car went faster and faster and faster until it accelerated and his whole family died in a wreck. It was awful. But the study showed that he was never pressing the brake pedal to begin with. He was slamming down on the gas sincerely, confidently. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they were like this, sincerely pressing down the wrong pedal, thinking it was the right pedal, and they wouldn't let up. Listen, no matter how sincere your feelings, it's not enough if you're pressing down the wrong pedal. A spiritual leader or pastor can say that they get down on their knees every day and pray and ask God for direction. They can feel down to their bones that they are in the right. They may be one of the kindest souls you've ever met, but sincere feelings are not enough. Why? Because it isn't the degree of a pastor's sincerity that makes them worthy to be followed. It is the degree in which they line up with Scripture. You see, when sincerity is more important than truth, pastors come to passages in Scripture that are really clear and they dismiss them because they feel out of place. On the other extreme, when sincerity is more important than truth, pastors claim that certain beliefs are absolutely clear in Scripture when in reality there's more mystery and tension. And so we can have unity in the essentials, Diversity 
and the non-essentials and charity and all. Chrysostom said this early in the church, in church history around 4th century A.D. So please, this is important. If you ever hear me or any other pastor say, I know it says this in Scripture somewhere, but the more I've prayed about it, I think instead, or I just don't feel like this is the case anymore, and then what's said dismisses God's word, it doesn't matter if there are tears of contrition in their eyes. Be leery of whether you let them steer your life because they share a lot in common with the Pharisees. And we know what Jesus has to say about that. Sincerity that in any way seeks to sidestep Jesus and his word is like hitting the wrong pedal and it will wreck you every time. It's the first and maybe the most common way, I think, that spiritual malpractice and that Jesus highlights here, it shows itself in our church, churches across this, this nation, across the world. So beware, be on the lookout. Be like the Bereans. The Apostle Paul, he celebrates the Bereans in the book of Acts. Why? Because even when the Apostle Paul came to town and taught, the Bereans were like, all right, show me where that's at in Scripture. All right, I know you're the Apostle and everything, but let's, let's see where this fits within God's Word. And Paul's like, yeah, be more like them. Know God's Word. And may God help us. The second sign of spiritual malpractice that Jesus condemns is when passion is directed only at the small things. When passion is directed only at the small things, and this is also all over the seven woes that Jesus lists here, but it's maybe most explicit in verses 23 through 24. Look with me again at verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done, Without neglecting the others, you blind guide straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Now, giving 10%, a tithe is what that means, right? Of your herb garden in the first century is kind of like giving 10% on the interest you earn in your savings account. <laughs> it's kind of like pennies, or at least for my savings account. I don't know about yours, right? It's like 0.01 interest earned. Great. Um, feel awesome. That kind of tithing, it takes a lot of passion, a lot of passion, and Jesus isn't condemning that, actually. But what he is saying is that to be so passionate there and then to miss God's heart for justice and how he defines justice, to miss his heart for mercy and compassion and faithfulness is like being so anxious to remove this little gnat from your beverage but being willing to swallow a camel without batting an eye. It's absolutely absurd. You see, whenever someone majors on the minors... Justice will be manipulated and mercy withheld. Time and again, you'll see this. I remember hearing a story um, from my uncle who he wrestled with alcohol addiction his whole life and he passed away a few years ago. Now, on one Sunday morning, after he'd been out with his friends drinking most of the night, um, he decided to give church a try. And to, to his, you know, his confession, he's like, look, I hadn't showered for a couple days, but you just never know when God's going to tug on your heart. And I wanted to go to church and I wanted to hear about what, what this gospel was all about. So he tried to slide into the back row with no one noticing, tried to be quiet, just wanted to listen and kind of do some sightseeing and kind of check out what's going on. But during the stand and greet, one of the pastoral leaders found him out and said, hey, you need to leave. And he's like, Why? He's like, if you were serious about this whole church thing, you would have showered before you came this morning. 
And if you're really serious, you'll go home and shower and you'll come back next week. Now, is hygiene important? I think we can all nod our heads, right? And say showering is a nice courtesy to those who are sitting next to you. But was it the most weighty issue in that circumstance? Of course not. We can nod our heads in agreement. And it was because of that moment my uncle said he would never darken the door of another church. And that breaks my heart to this day. And listen, I can tell you story after story of pastoral leaders, church leaders, congregants who become obsessed with facility design, you know, dress code, or worship style, all of which are really worthy of discussion. We need to do those things thoughtfully. We need to still unpack God's word on these things. But listen, when they become the prime area of our devotion and the prime area in which we divide or unite, then something has gone terribly awry in how we understand the mission of Jesus. When passion is directed only at small things, we miss in really big ways. I remember growing up with people and being one of these people, okay, um, where you would obsess over what translation of the Bible you used. Anybody remember these days? I don't think it's that big of a deal anymore now, but it was like a huge deal, you know, because those of you who are new to the Christian faith, the Bible wasn't written in English, okay? It was written in like Hebrew, Ugaritic, and also the whole New Testament is Koine Greek, and there's a whole group of translators who are trying to use a good philosophy of linguistics to communicate the truth that's inherent in the text, not inherent in myself, so I come trying to find the truth in the text. There you go. And so you had these whole camps, right? It was like the KJV only, right? It's called the authorized version for a reason. You got that camp. And then you had the other camp that was like, we want to be relevant. It's time for NIV. It's more translatable. It's more easily engaged. Let's go to the TNIV, right? And then all of a sudden you get all these arguments like, and people would find their identity in which Bible they were carrying around. And they, and they forgot and didn't realize that actually in both of those translation theories, the, the command to love your neighbor as yourself, <laughs> regardless of translation, especially within the church, is still there. And so we became so con consumed with the small that we lost the weightier matter of loving one another. And listen, every generation, they have their small things. Every generation has their small things that we make the major thing or the major things we just kind of make small things. Every generation. You can think about it in your own life. We can think about it in our culture today. It's easy to look back and kind of giggle at some of these other things, but we've got just as absurd stuff in our culture today. And whenever those important things become the most important thing, when it becomes our exclusive focus, we miss Jesus' mission big time. When passion is directed only at small things, not that those other things aren't important and don't, doesn't mean we shouldn't give good thought to them, but when it's only directed at these small things, then you know there's spiritual malpractice. So beware. And may God help us. And, and you have to kind of scratch your head because I know it sounds absurd to say, oh, don't be passionate just about the small things. Like, Why do we do this? Why was this such a lure for religious people? Why is this such a draw for the Pharisees? And here's, here's why. It has everything to do with the third sign of spiritual malpractice. You know I've missed it. We've missed it. As a church, any Christian has missed what Jesus is getting at when focus is more on your image than your heart. You can count on it. When somebody is only passionate about small things, then they'll focus more on the outside than the inside. Why? Because those things are really easy to manage. It's easy to check the box. It's easy to make yourself look really good when you've only got these small things that you need to align with. When your primary passion is this little deal here and you've suddenly found yourself accomplishing it, then you've 
person, you, you know, you puffed up your own sense of self-importance. And there's probably nothing that Jesus is more ticked off about with the Pharisees than their zeal to be seen as important. More important than they are. It seems like this is all over Jesus' woes here. If you look at verse 25, he says they're like cups that try to clean the outside, but the inside is just absolutely disgusting. Verse 27, they're like tombs that are whitewashed. Oh, beautiful. But on the inside, it's just bones of dead people. In verse 5, the Pharisees do everything to draw the paparazzi. In verse 6, they want to sit in the most honored seats. And really, their heart isn't to guide people in right worship, but it's to guide people to revere them, which is why in verse 7, they're so passionate about titles. You know, growing up in the church, when I was young, I didn't know my pastor's name. Um, I just knew him as pastor. I remember asking my mom, who's that? Oh, it's pastor. And like, even at like five or seven, you're like, who would name their son pastor? You know, she's like, no, no, no. That's just who he is. He's the pastor. Oh, what should I call him? Pastor. Right. Okay, good. Imagine if we did that with other vocations. Who are you? Mortician. Ah, you know, or what about you? Dancer. Hmm, okay, nice. It seems so interesting. And, and growing up, it was almost anathema to call him anything other than pastor. And listen, I, I don't mean to be disrespectful or judgmental. I'm not casting blame on pastoral motives when that's a part of the culture. But this is what I do know, and this is what we see within the Pharisees, is that when there's an overemphasis on outward appearance and titles, you will always find a breeding ground for hypocrisy and arrogance. Always. And this overinflated sense of self-importance. When focus is more on your image than your heart, you can also, you'll, you'll, you'll come to find this, that, that, that suddenly the gospel is for people who need it out there. The cross is only for people who need it out there and it stopped becoming the core need for the people in here. It stopped becoming a core need for the person right here. But everybody else needs this, but we're doing just fine. And the strong us versus them language that is toxic and it begins to destroy and rift churches out of even their broader communities. And eventually, pastoral accountability, if it was there to begin with, slowly falls to the wayside because the narrative becomes, well, surely he would never or surely they would never think. And if you were to even begin to second guess, then you'll experience ostracization first from the leadership and then by the followership per obedience. And listen, stories like this, they make it in the headlines all the time about churches. And I'm terrified. <laughs> I know me. I don't know if you know me, but I know me. I know how broken I am. And I'll be the first to say that sometimes pastoral leaders are the worst. Jesus highlights that some of the most common signs of this pastoral mispractice are a misplaced sincerity, a limited passion, and a focus on externals. And it won't be long before it brings everything around it crumbling down. Because this kind of leadership, it's not just unsustainable, it's, it's toxic. So toxic, in fact, that it doesn't just destroy the church, it fractures friendships, families, and it bleeds out into the very neighborhood. When you start to see church splits, where neighbors aren't talking to each other and they're going to churches opposite end of town, and we are unified in Christ. This is why Jesus ends his woes with this lament over all of Jerusalem. Because there is, <laughs> the stakes are so high with spiritual leadership. And listen, if you've gone through that, if you've 
If you've been around a spiritual leader or pastor that's encapsulated what Jesus condemns here, it draws out all sorts of emotions, doesn't it? It draws out anger over the pain of what's been lost. Maybe, and I know this to be, to be true in some of your stories, it draws out guilt and shame, asking yourself, what did I do to deserve this? How did I contribute to this? Whether it's misplaced shame and guilt or, or what? For many of you, it causes heartache because you have friends and family who've experienced this pain from churches. And you know that the repercussions are not just there within the church, but they're communal and they're even generational. When parents who have been burned by the church start to have kids, the narrative they tell their kids is, don't go there. They'll destroy your life. And slowly the afterburn of one moment can impact generations of people. The stakes are high and it terrifies me sometimes. And I think the real normal response to all of that is to be jaded with the church. A lot of people have become jaded, and I don't blame you. Um, it's really tempting to walk away from the church when you've had a really terrible experience with one church. And some have, and lost all hope in what the church can be and has been called to be. And listen, there are times to leave the church, or a church, Okay. There may be times where it's just really not healthy for you to stay there. You've sought appropriate pathways of communication with leadership within the community, and at that time, there is no reconciliation, and one of the healthiest things you can do is actually remove. I get that, and I don't want you to hear me saying otherwise. But I'm also convinced, and this isn't just because I'm a pastor and I have a vested interest. I know you're thinking about that, right? Let's just put it on the table. But I've seen this time and again, that the path of healing from a bad experience with a church only can happen when you engage a new experience with a new church. That is the pathway of healing. Otherwise, you will forever be embittered to the church until you realize that not every church is utterly broken. It's full of broken people, but God is doing amazing things around the world through his people. And it's a beautiful mess, sometimes more beautiful, sometimes more messy but still a place of healing and where life can take shape and where life can be cultivated. I want to encourage, no matter what happens here, if something ever happens here, God help us and may it not be so, if something happens, has happened somewhere else and you're giving church a try, I beg you not to give up on the church because you had a bad experience with a church. And while judgment, it came upon these religious leaders in Matthew 23 and it was too late for them, it's not too late for us. I'm hopeful that we can be proactive. I'm hopeful that we can open up the doors of communication. This is why we have a congregational form of church government, okay? That we, we talk about, it's kind of silly, but it's a three-legged stool in terms of authority within the local church here at Christ Community. You have the pastoral leadership, the elders, which are predominantly congregants, and then all the members of the local church. And there is this desire in Matthew chapter, or uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20, to submit one to another, to keep each other accountable, to call each other to grow in Christ's likeness. And we want to provide more avenues for communication, to be proactive, to be thoughtful, and to so guard against some of these top dangers of spiritual malpractice. And so, I need your help. I've got blind spots. What does it look like for us to help each other? Here's a couple ways, okay? First, regardless of, of whether you've had a really terrible experience with the church or you've had a really good experience with the church and you moved here and you think the best days are the good old days, here's what I need you to do. 
And this is what I think we find even in Jesus' example is to pray more, not less. Even after all of these woes, Jesus ends in a prayer over Jerusalem, a lament. So whatever your experience, pray more, not less. Pray for us as pastors that we would have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, that we would not be blind in arrogance or hungry for power or that we would not commit moral failure, that we'd be honest and above reproach, all of these things. But by the grace of God, there go I. I I get it. I have to set firm boundaries because I'm broken like everybody else. Pray that that God would protect us from ourselves. Pray for the church, that God would protect her, that he would cause her to grow both deep and wide, that new people would come to know the saving faith of Jesus Christ. And that would energize those who are mature in the faith. And those who are mature in the faith would be then feeding back into those who are new and beginning to walk in in, in the light of the gospel. Pray for the church and then pray for yourself because you're not immune to any of these. All of these, yes, they're, they're, they're cornerstone and top dangers for spiritual malpractice, but it can happen for any Christian. Pray that you would have understanding and wisdom on how to listen and how to confront. We need you. When life gets busy, please don't cut prayer. Pray more, not less. Next, get more involved, not less. Listen, one of the top reasons that we within the church can either have inappropriate perspectives of a pastor and put him on a pedestal or inappropriate perspectives of a pastor and judge them is when we're not engaged. We've kept them at arm's length and they're either so amazing, they're like beyond human and I could never do that or they're like the worst thing in the world. How could they ever think? It's a big way to help guard against that is to get engaged. Know how we're trying to seek and follow Jesus. Understand the messiness of these decisions that they're never made tritely. But as we seek to follow Jesus in the midst of a broken world, how we make the best decisions, seeking the guidance of the spirit within the church community together. Get more involved in a Sunday morning. Get more involved in a community group. Become a member. Or here's, here's a real tangible way. And I know this is, this, is, this is very serious. I know you just heard an announcement about it. And you're going to hear about it in the benediction again too. Take the reveal survey. I know that seems really trite and you're like, come on. No, it's huge. This is a pathway we've provided to say, tell us what we're doing well so we can get better at it. Tell us where we're missing the boat so we can grow. We want to come alongside of you and we want to create a safe environment where that's the case. That's why it's anonymous. So you can be brutally honest, but hopefully not brutal. We need your feedback. I know it's going to take 15 minutes. I know we're busy. And maybe you lost that email because you have a filter that says throw all of Gabe's emails to the trash. Go find it, right? Go find it, dig it up. And take that 15 minutes and let us know how we're doing so we can grow. We really want to do this. We, we love you guys and we want to come alongside any way we can and get better at it. So get more involved, not less. And then last, but definitely not least, is chase Jesus more, not less. I don't know your history. I don't know every single story in here, but, but I love the image that Jesus leaves us with here at the end. He paints himself as a chicken. <laughs> Which is great. It's, it's, all of us kind of wandering around. We're these little chicks that are just like wandering around. And he's like the mother hen. And he's like, come. I know things feel like they're chaos, but get under my wings. Come, I'll protect you. I'm here. Just come to me. And he's like, frust- it's like this frustrated mother hen just trying to gather these, these chicks that have run amok. And Jesus is saying, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
That's the picture of Jesus. And you know what's at the core of my job description? It's not to tell you where I sincerely stand. It's not to be passionate about a few small things. It's not to try to keep up a good appearance. If you've ever been around me, it doesn't last very long. Instead, my whole job description is to point you to Jesus. To point you to the one that's revealed here. That those who abandoned Jesus on the cross when he died, they they said they experienced him resurrected so much so that they came back and then they gave their lives to proclaim that Jesus not only lived and died, but he rose again bodily. And he's bringing about a change throughout this world and he's offering salvation for free for whoever will come and bow the knee to Jesus Christ. That's my job is to point to him. He's the one who has the words of life. And the best I can do is echo his voice. He's the source of true passion. He's the one who will guide us in honest sincerity. He's the one who will clean us from the inside out. And that's really my prayer for us, is that we get under the wings of Jesus. It's my prayer for us as pastors. It's my prayer for our campus, for Christ's community across the five campuses, across the city. It's my prayer that we would not be the demise to our city, but instead this church across campuses, and especially here downtown, would be a catalyst to the flourishing of Kansas City. That's my hope. But we can't do this alone. We've got to do it together. In transparency, tethered to God's word, with passion about the most weighty things that that God is passionate about. And like I said, I can't do this alone. We can't do this alone. So I've asked actually Hepzibah, to come. She's a member of Christ's community and specifically engaged here downtown. I've asked her to come and pray for us as pastors, to pray for us as a church, to pray for our city, that we would start by coming under the wings of Jesus. So I have to I'm actually going to ask um, Pastor Tyler and our worship leader, Ryan, to join us as well so we can all pray for them together. This is a prayer of supplication, of deep, deep asking. So let's draw near in faith and ask this for our church, for each other, and for our pastors. Lord, thank you for the gift of your church. It is truly a beautiful community filled with great blessing, but we all know too well that churches can become places of great hurt and pain. So we ask that you would help us as we seek to keep this church from becoming a place of hurt. We want this community to be an environment of health, transparency, and truth, a healthy place for God's people to gather, connecting with one another and connecting with you. We need your help with this task. We pray that you will protect us from error. Keep us from getting passionate and riled up about small things or from focusing on sincerity and fervor rather than truth. Protect us from spiritual blindness. We bring our pastors and spiritual leaders before your throne of grace. Please guide them away from misdirection and wrong focus. Instead, fill their eyes with you, your ways, your plans, and help us to encourage them in that path. Be with their families and friends, their support systems that hold them up in their day to day. For all of us, I pray, courage 
to speak up when conversations need to take place mm. and to contribute actively to the work that it takes to maintaining a lovely and healthy environment. Yes. In this moment of silence, Lord, hear the prayers that are welling up in our hearts. Lord, we know that this morning's discussion of spiritual malpractice must certainly have brought up painful or difficult memories in the minds of many who are attending. Be so close to us. Let the healing win over the hurt. Mm. We bring that pain to you this morning and we ask you to work deeply in our hearts, rebuilding our capacity to trust our church. It's a hard thing to have a healthy church, and yet we are already yours. Hmm. So we come boldly asking for your help. Lord, hear our prayer. Church, let's say that together. Lord, Lord hear, hear our, our prayer. prayer. Amen and amen. Thank you, Hepsibah.